0: You're listening to the Two Tongues Podcast. And now your hosts, Kyle and Chris. Well, not Kyle today. Just Chris. You're just getting Chris again, you guys. All right, enough of that music. Well, good morning. So I'm going to be doing... Are we going to be doing a difficult one today. One that I... I took my time preparing... Um, well, I, I don't know if that's fair. I'm not convinced that I'm fully prepared to do this one because it was challenging, but I'm gonna try. So this is gonna be my last one on Plato for some time, just because I, boy oh boys, it's more difficult than I than I suspected to do this. Um, but I did pick a good one. So when I was going through all the Platonic dialogues, trying to figure out which ones I wanted to talk about. I considered doing like the, you know, the, the most famous ones, and then I considered doing ones that I'd never heard of, and that's kind of where I landed on this one. So there's a Platonic dialogue called Parmenides, and I'd never heard of it. So I went ahead and read it, and it kind of blew my mind. Um, I've said this before; I'll say it again. Um, th- that folks will will bring up Plato and say that all of philosophy is a footnote to Plato. What I didn't realize was that all of sort of the mystic intuition that I always talk about, the sorts of things that people say when they have uh, a psychedelic or a mystic experience of some kind, the kind of things that we see in lots of different types of religious beliefs, well, it turns out all of that Plato said also. I didn't know that. Um, In this dialogue, Parmenides, I'm going to read it. You're going to see Plato sounds very mystical. He sounds like a Vedanta Hindu practitioner or um, a hippie. He sounds like me and in my diatribes about uh, about uh, the mystic intuition, and that surprised me. Um, it's something that like obviously this goes back to 400 BC, but it's something that we haven't um, got to the bottom of yet. So there are people. Today, that are still talking about the stuff that we're going to talk about today. Mostly, those people today are philosophers and physicists. Um, but it's 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 an open question. This idea about the nature of reality, the idea about the the question of um, the existence of God or the role that consciousness plays in being. All of this stuff is they're open questions, but they're questions that Plato talked about, which I didn't expect. So here it is. Um, we talked about Parmenides before when we did the pre-Socratic uh, philosophers episodes. We did two of those. I think the first one, m- m- maybe it was the second one that had Parmenides in it. There was a couple of quotes that we read from this pre-Socratic philosopher Parmenides, but there's not a lot that survived. So Parmenides is we've only got you know a couple of things that he's uh, that he's written down that have survived. We read them before. I'm going to read them again because there's there's not a whole lot there, so it, was, it won't take too much time. But I'll read that to you to give you some context. And I'll also give you an intro on the the um, the dialogue itself because all of them sort of have a story that goes along with them, like we talked about, almost like a play. Um, all right, so when I said a minute ago that um, that these questions are still open-ended and that we're still talking about them today... One of the things that comes to mind are a couple of my my favorite philosophers, um, Friedrich uh, Hegel or Hegel. I don't know how how you pronounce it. H e g e l. He wrote uh, one of the first phenomenologists. He wrote in the early 1800s, and then a guy named um, Heidegger, who I've talked about as well, who wrote um, you know much later, like you know 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, that kind of thing. And both of those guys, we're talking about pretty modern. Um, they talk in depth about questions things that sound really obvious when when we start reading them. you might think that, but things that people don't think about all that much because they sort of take them for granted and um and it 's not exactly fair um The question of being is one of them uh we 'll talk about it i mean um in fact, let me read let me read to you uh something that Heidegger wrote in 1926 in a, a, one of his uh, philosophical books called Being and Time. Um, this is his most important one and uh, not, not, not far into the book. He says something like this. He says, As a seeking, questioning needs prior guidance from what it seeks. The meaning of being must therefore already be available to us in a certain way. We intimated that we are always ready, or excuse me, we are al- always already ready Involved in an understanding of being. From this grows the explicit question of the meaning of being and the tendency towards its concept. We do not know what being means, but already we ask, what is being? We stand in an understanding of the is without being able to determine conceptually what the is means. Amazing. He says, we, we do not even know the horizon upon which we are supposed to grasp and pin down the meaning. Okay, so so this is interesting. And I've said this before, in mean, this specific quote I've read before, but it's just pointing out something super obvious. That when we ask what is being, that's a good question, because we take it for granted. We exist, the, the way that we exist is something that we call being, you know, it's our experience. It's, you know, the material world around us. That's, that's what, we mean, what we mean when we say being, you know, existing here. Um, but when you ask the question, what is being, it's sort of difficult to answer. It's obvious. It's like the most obvious thing there is because we are. So the thing that we are is being. We're in being right now. Everything happening right now is being, whatever that means. We know it. It's all we know. But when you ask, what is being, it's a freaking hard question to answer. Maybe impossible. But this is the the weird thing that that, um, Heidegger points out. He, He says, even when you ask the question, what is being, you already understand the word is. What is being? You already know. This is the weird thing. The word is is the same thing as the word being. So is the word am, right? It's like, I am, right? What does that mean? It means being. It means this, this, the thing that's happening right to what both of us right now, whatever it is. It's being. So I can ask the question, what is being? I can understand that I, the question I'm asking. And still, it's impossible to answer, even though when I say, what is being, I seem to already know what I mean, even though I can't tell you that. It's a very, very weird thing. What is being? So this is something that, this is something that uh, we're going to talk about today, being. Um, it's it's all wrapped up in the idea of consciousness, and it's wrapped up in the idea of God. And again, this is a question that Hegel and Heidegger and others today are still talking about. It's open, an open question. Maybe one of the most interesting unanswered questions. All right, so to to intro this uh, Parmenides before we get into into the uh, dialogue itself, I want to talk about a couple things. Um, Parmenides, you might remember. He's one of the guys that he's one of the philosophers that was stuck on this notion that everything that exists is one, whatever that means. everything is one. you've heard that before you know from from you know from a hippie maybe everything is one all right, so probably let me just read these these two quotes from Parmenides that we have again, not a lot's left, but I'll read them and then we'll go back to where I wanted to begin. So a couple things just to refresh your memory on Parmenides. Parmenides said this. He says, It is the same thing to think and to be. It is the same thing to think and to be. That kind of reminds me of Descartes who said, um, I think therefore I am. So maybe, maybe Parmenides beat him to the punch many, many, many hundreds of years before. He says, it is the same thing to think and to be so that there's a connection between thinking um, consciousness, you might say, and being right. Uh, Whatever that means. So Parmenides is making a connection here that to think and to be, there's some fundamental connection there. All right. This is the next quote. He says, being has no coming into being and no destruction for it is whole of limb without motion and without end. And it never was, nor will be, because it is now, a whole altogether, one, continuous. So this is something that I've talked about before, but what comes to mind is the ever-present moment. So it just, it's just like the now, the right now. It's like right now is all we're aware of, ever, just the moment. And people don't think about that. Um, we have an idea of time, and we think about the past, and we think about the future, but the only thing we ever have is now, the moment. So that's interesting, because when he's talking about when he's talking about everything being one, uh, there's this connection to this moment. It's like the thing that we're experiencing that's always now. It's the ever-present moment. That thing is like one, whatever that means. Um, all right, so he says, um, "How whence could it have sprung?" Nor shall I allow you to speak or think of it as springing from not being. For it is neither expressible nor thinkable that what is not is. Also, what necessity impelled it, if it did not spring from nothing, to be produced later or earlier? Thus, it must be absolutely or nothing at all. So this is Parmenides saying that if reality is one thing, like like his intuition is telling him and he's trying to tell us, if that's the case... That thing has to be absolute or nothing at all. Either it's everything or it's nothing at all. So that's important. And the last quote we have from Parmenides says, Nor is being divisible, since it is all alike. Nor is there anything here or there which could prevent it from holding together. Nor any less thing, but all is full of being. Therefore it is altogether continuous, for being is close to being. Alright, so that's Parmenides. That's it. That's really all we've got from his from his lips from his words, um, we're going to talk about Plato and what Plato had to say about him, but uh, uh this is it, this is all we have, and you can see how how poetic it is, how hippy dippy it is there's a um there's an emphasis on being, obviously there's an emphasis on this oneness, you know whatever it is that exists to Parmenides is one thing, and it's interesting because how do you how do you reconcile the idea of The fact that reality exists in this way that we experience with objects and and subjects and differences and you know uh, boundaries and borders it's like we live in this place where things are all separate from one another and Parmenides is coming in and saying no I don't think so I don't think so so we have to throw all of our logic out the window all of our perceptions and the knowledge from our perceptions out the window is that what we're being asked to do well kind of Uh, let's Let's get back to where I wanted to begin here. All right, so let's just talk about this idea uh, for a bit. Let's talk about the idea of the one or the absolute. When you hear people talk about God, usually it's in the context of creation. So when the idea of God comes up, because people ask, "How how did things get here? How did we get here? How did the cosmos get here? What's the starting point? What's the origin? This is the question that brings up the idea of God, whatever that means, it's not clear. Uh, but to understand that that oneness that Parmenides is bringing to the table, that's something that's absolute. It, you know, it, it's what you hear from any religious person who tries to describe God. They're going to say things to you like, God is eternal. God is all-powerful. God is, he's all-knowing. Something like that. Those are the kind of things you get. Um. So, so the idea here is when we're thinking about this from the perspective of creation, like the notion that there wasn't anything and then suddenly there was, that's the idea of creation or the big bang, that kind of thing, um, that whatever it is that causes that it's, if it's one, it's self-contained. It's like, there is nothing else. If it is one then there is nothing else, the only thing that is, is the, is, is God, let's call it God for lack of a better word. And that is a common religious belief. It's, something, it's an idea that has emerged independently all over the world and as far back in history as we can go. So we talked about the Vedanta school of Hinduism. Hinduism is the oldest religion in the world, 5,000 years old, maybe older. We talked about that, uh, these ideas coming up in early Christianity among the Gnostics. We talked about them popping up in tribal religions, Stone Age religions all over the world. That there's this idea of God, first of all, and there's an idea of God as one, as something that's complete, something that is um, self-created, self-contained, um, you know, the absolute, the highest idea that's possible, something like that. Now, what's interesting is that that's also something that you experience in, uh, in the mystic experience or in psychedelic experience where people say that they're, that they're religious, you know, they have these religious experiences. Again, whether it's a mystic one or a psychedelic or whatever it is, that that people who come back from these experiences say, hey, what I what I experienced in this state is the, the truth. Something like, that they might describe that way. The intuition that everything is one, that there are that the differences and distinctions we pretend exist don't. And that if we could only know that, if we could only live with that knowledge, that things would be better. Um, in fact, it comes through as so important. It's like something that, that you feel like you have to share with people. And then you sound like a crazy person, like, like I sound to you right now, I'm sure. Um, so, so in any case, you see this idea popping up in religions everywhere. Um, you also see it in the mystic experience, which you know pe- many people argue is at the foundation of, re- of the development of religion, period. And, and this intuition is that, that all is one. That's what it is. You've heard people say, I felt like I was one with the universe. That's what they mean. Everything, including yourself, is one. And so there's this blurry blurring that happens between subject and object where the thing you are and the things you experience don't exactly seem to be different to you anymore. And it's a and it's a religious feeling. It is a it is a remarkable spiritual experience that once you've experienced it you cannot deny. It's undeniable. It's very interesting. So it's something that it comes as a surprise to you when you have the experience. And the reason I've already described is because the fact that everything is one is not intuitive. It doesn't seem right. Because why? Because every time I wake up and I walk, I get out of my bed and I do the things I do during the day, it is me and the world. It is me and an infinite number of other things and other people going on. That's how it seems. So if somebody then tells you, no, really all of that, all of that's just one, then what? Then then what? It shakes the foundation of everything, of all of your perceptions so you get this feeling that well so a surprise is how i put it but it's a surprise it's it's disbelief it's uh kind of a visceral feeling of like rejection but you just get pulled right back into it you can't deny it so you just have to kind of reconcile it with your beliefs it's very very strange so it's like a um a feeling of surprise it's it's a cognitive dissonance also so if you it's like what you're expecting and what you're encountering are Different, and you can't quite make sense of it. So there's this cognitive dissonance that goes on, but then there's also a powerful feeling or sense of awe, wonder, and meaning that come along with it. Um, and that's the way that people describe having experiences of God. You know, you feel small. Um, you feel um, can't completely in awe of what you're experiencing. It's 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 like it's impossible to make sense of, and something about that inability to make sense of it is so sweet. I don't know how to put it any other way. It's a good feeling. It is a... It, I, I don't know how to, know how to ex- explain it to you. But when you feel it, you know what I mean. So it's this disbelief, this dissonance, this feeling of awe and wonder that you cannot shake. It's an experience that once you've felt it, it can't be reversed. It forces you to reevaluate everything you know through the lens of this idea that everything is one. Because you can't shake it anymore. That all is one idea seems like the most true thing you know, and you and you can't help but sort of hold on to that. So everything else you know and then has to be reinterpreted through this lens. It's unshakable. And yet and yet this belief has implications that are so strange that to consider them is tantamount to a descent into insanity. Or at least a major injury to the notion that that perception is reliable. You know, at a minimum, it makes you question whether the things that you think are real, the things that you perceive are as they seem to be. So let's think about this for a second. What would it mean if all is one? What would that what would that mean if that were true? Go with me. So if the source and structure of reality, the thing that allowed all of the cosmos to emerge and you and I to evolve, all of that stuff, well, let's call that God. If God is in fact one, then he's one in the same thing as the material cosmos, as reality. If there's only God, then then the reality that you and I experience and the reality that we are, that's God too, something like that. So if you and I and the trees outside and the stars up in heaven and the atoms that all of those are made from, that all of those things are in fact one substance, what would that mean? Okay, so seemingly it would mean that there is nothing else, right? Nothing else besides the one thing. Let's call that God. So if all is one and that oneness is God, then everything is God, Something like that. We talked about that in the Spinoza episode. There's, lot, there's people that believe this. Um, so there are no objects apart from or outside of God because God is all there is. So there's no objects, there's no subjects, there's just God. There's no beginning or end to God either, right? Because there's nothing outside of God that could have created it. There's nothing other than God to distinguish it from anything else, right? So, so God is eternal then somehow. And if he's eternal, then he's outside of time. So if God, is all there, if, if God is all there is, there's no before God or after God. There's no before or after anything. So what about space? If God is all there is, there's no space outside of God. There's nothing to move to or from. There's just God. So if all is one, what does that mean? There's no time. There's no space. There's no subjects or objects. If God is one, then we, we have to question all of that. And all of that stuff is how we understand our existence. So what does that mean? What do we do with this information? If we've had the mystic experience and we can't deny it anymore, what do we do with that information? So... If we're convinced that God is one, then what? Do we have to presume that objects, subjects, space, and time are illusions? I think so, to a certain degree. And Parmenides did too, in 600 BC. So let's see this. Let's see what he has to say here. All right, so now we're going to talk about Parmenides from the... Mouth of Socrates. So this is again Plato writing one of these dialogues. It's called Parmenides. Um, the scene is set like this: There's a group of men. They're meeting up at the agora. The agora is like the big open market, you know, in, in the in the town. So these that's where people meet, right? That's the public place. So these, there's a group of people. They're meeting up at the agora. They bump into a guy named Cephalus, and he was just visiting Athens. He's not from Athens, and he went there is kind of looking for somebody. He went there in the hopes of making uh, the acquaintance of a friend of a philosopher named Zeno. Um, and the reason is that Zeno had this conversation once upon a time, publicly. They were talking about philosophy, and it's like a legendary conversation. And, and uh, Cephalus wants somebody who was there, who heard it, to tell him what happened. So you have to remember, 600 BC, we're going back a long ways. You don't exactly have news. You don't exactly have anything to record on. So if, if somebody had a, just an absolutely amazing public speech years ago, you might never know anything about it. And if you got word that somebody did and they could tell you what happened and what was said, you might be very interested to know. And what would you have to do in 600 B.C.? You'd have to literally leave your town, make a dangerous and expensive trip to some other place, and search high and low for this person that you've never met before, track them down and see if they'll tell you the story. That's what he's done, okay? This is what Cephalus has done. So, this, so the story is that many years earlier, Zeno, Socrates, and Parmenides, they got together and they were talking philosophy. It's this conversation that Cephalus wants to hear. At this time, um, Zeno is about 40 years old. Parmenides is elderly, and, is, and uh, he's traveling with Zeno um, to Athens. So that's when this conversation happens. And they bump into Socrates at the time. Socrates is from Athens, so he's there. At the time, he was a very young man. So you've got two famous philosophers, Parmenides, uh, who's like the elder philosopher, Zeno, who's like his pupil, and Socrates, who's this up-and-coming you know, whippersnapper. All right, so that's what's happening. That's how the scene is being set. Cephalus has come to Athens. He's trying to find Zeno or anybody who can tell him the story about when Zeno, Socrates, and Parmenides got together because they had one hell of a conversation. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at Parmenides' conversation with Socrates. All right, so where um, I'm going to start in the dialogue, it goes like this. I'm going to read a little bit here just to kind of intro the, the conversation goes like this. They wanted to hear the writings of Zeno, which had been brought to Athens for the first time on the occasion of their visit. These Zeno himself read to them in the absence of Parmenides. When the recitation was completed, Socrates said, what is your meaning, Zeno? Do you maintain that if being is many, it must be both like and unlike, and that this is impossible? Okay, so let me just stop. So here's Socrates. He's asking his first question to Zeno after hearing Zeno tell him the philosophy that Parmenides and Zeno have been, have been spreading, which is this idea that all is one. All is one. So Socrates' first question is, do you maintain that if, that if being is many, that it, mu- that it must be both like and unlike, and that's impossible? So the question is, because there are things in the world that are opposites, um, that means they can't be one, and so it's impossible. Is that what you're saying? And uh, and Zeno says this. He says, I, under- I understand, or excuse me, so- Socrates, says he says, I understand, says Socrates, but tell me, Zeno, do you not further think that there is an idea of likeness in itself and another idea of unlikeness, and that in these two, you and I and all other things participate? All right, so this is interesting. So. This is where Socrates starts to talk in a way that Plato, that becomes characteristic of Plato. And it's the idea of a difference between an essence or a form and a reality. So we've talked about this before, but it's like, if I say to you that, that something is beautiful, like a sunset, and then I say to you that a, a human body is beautiful and a flower is beautiful and a song is beautiful, that there's this idea of beauty in there, in these objects, and because all of these different types of objects are beautiful, something like a song and a sunset, very hard to compare them. But you can say they're both beautiful. And so there's this idea of beauty in all of these examples. And in the world, you have the examples. And in consciousness, you have the idea. And what Plato grabs a hold of is this idea that, that those f- perfect forms, Forms, the idea, the beauty that you're seeing in all these different examples, that there's some reality to this idea that you can see expressed in these different examples. But there's something that's not in the examples. It's not in the world. It's something that we call, we call beauty. We recognize it in the examples, but it's not like free floating beauties out there someplace and I can put it in a jar and label it beauty. It's not like that. It's something else. It's a form, it's an essence. And this is the first time, talking to Parmenides, that this idea starts to come up. And Socrates is asking Zeno, he says, um, he says, hey, you know, is is it possible that there's this idea of, of, of likeness in itself and another idea of unlikeness, and that we participate in both of them? And not all things partake of both opposites and be both like and unlike. By reason of this participation, where's the wonder? There is nothing extraordinary, Zeno, in showing that the things which only partake of likeness and unlikeness experience both. Nor again, if a a person were to show that all is one by partaking of one, and at the same time, many by partaking of many. If a person wanted to prove of me that I was many and also one, when he wanted to show that I was many, he would say that I have a right and a left side, and a front and a back, and an upper and a lower half. For I cannot deny that I partake of multitude." When on the other hand, he wants to prove that I am one, he will say that, he, that we who are here assembled are seven, and that I am one and partake of the one. In both instances, he proves his case. So again, if a person shows that such things as wood, stones, and the like, being many, are also one, we admit that he shows the coexistence, the one and many, but he does not show that the many are one, or that the one many He is uttering not a paradox, but a truism. So this is Socrates definitely taking a stab at Zeno. He's saying, look, there are ways that we can consider things as many and one. And they're both sort of true. So you can imagine, you know, I'm sitting here, um, you know, with a group of seven people, and I consider myself one of seven. So I'm one. But if you look at all the parts, you know, that I'm made of, you can say that I'm many. I have fingers and toes and organs and cells and all kinds of things going on that roll up together into this, into this thing that I am. It's like, that's not any, you're not saying anything important here. You know, you're, that's a truism is what he's saying. He's like, that's, that's, that's obvious. So Socrates is basically trying to poke holes and this is what Socrates does. He's trying to poke holes in people's philosophy so he can figure out what's true and what's not, you know, that's what he's always said is his, is, you know, his, his, his purpose. All right. So Zeno replies, he says, Socrates, he said, I admire the bent of your mind towards philosophy. Tell me now, was this your own distinction between ideas in themselves and the things which partake of them? And do you think that there is an idea of likeness apart from the idea, excuse me, apart from the likeness which we possess? So this is interesting. This is him saying, um, he's asking Socrates, was this your idea? Did you come to this on your own? that that it may be the case that ideas in themselves are different from the things that partake of them, right? So this is the idea of beauty versus a beautiful sunset or a beautiful song. Is it possible that this idea of beauty somehow exists all by itself? It must, right? If I'm gonna say that something is beautiful, I recognize the beauty. So beauty must exist, but how exactly? How does the idea of beauty exist? So this is what he's toying around with. Um, and so he, so he says, I think there are such ideas. So this is what Socrates is saying. Parmenides then says, would you make an idea of man apart from us and from all other human creatures? So now Parmenides is, asked, is doing what Socrates is doing. He's, he's asking questions, trying to get to the bottom of it. He says, would you make an idea of man apart from any individual man? Can you, can you, can you imagine that? An idea of a man that's not attached to any particular man. Uh, He says, Would you suppose that each of these has an idea distinct from the actual objects with which we come into contact, or not? Are the ideas and the objects the same, or are they different? This is what he's asking. Certainly not, said Socrates. Visible things like these are such as they appear to us, and I am afraid that there would be an absurdity in assuming any idea of them, although I sometimes get disturbed and begin to think that there is nothing without an idea. But then... Again, when I have taken up this position, I run away because I am afraid that I may fall into a bottomless pit of nonsense and perish. So this is awesome in my as far as I'm concerned, this is Socrates admitting his ignorance, which is something that people just don't do, and smart people don't do, and people that are seeking after knowledge and wisdom don't do um, but Socrates is doing that he's saying, "Look." I sometimes I think about this, and I feel like I'm, I feel like it, it makes sense, and it kind of scares me that it makes sense because it kind of feels like I'm going crazy. And what he means here is, uh, again, I'll just read this again. He says, "Visible things like like these are such as they appear to us." He's saying the world, the things we see in the world, I believe are just as they seem to be. And then he says, "And I am afraid that there would be an, an absurdity in assuming any idea of them." So he's saying it might be absurd to think that there could, that there could be an idea. Apart from the object, so that that beauty might exist somehow apart from the beautiful thing, and then he says, although I sometimes get disturbed and begin to think that there is nothing without an idea, so this is Socrates's first hint of this idea that Plato will call the world of forms, the idea that there are that there are ideas and that they somehow exist. Plato calls that the world of forms, whatever that means. But this is how he conceptualizes them as existing um, all by themselves. And then he says, but when I take up that position, I run away because I'm afraid that I may fall into a bottomless pit of nonsense and perish. He literally means that to try to understand ideas in and of themselves and how they must exist, because they must, because we experience them in reality. Trying to understand how they exist is taking Socrates down this road that he doesn't. It's like a dark pit. He doesn't know where where it will take him or what it means, and it frightens him so much that he's sort of afraid to even explore that idea. He says, "But I should like to know whether you mean that there are certain ideas of which all other things partake." Um, so this is a question that Parmenides is asking to Socrates. He says. Is there an idea that everything partakes of? So this is so. Again, we can talk about any sort of idea and wonder if it exists all by itself, like a beautiful sunset and a beautiful song. What he's saying is: Is there an idea that everything partakes in? So even if so, you know, a, a sunset partakes of beauty, a song partakes of beauty. He's saying, might there be an idea that everything partakes in? And Socrates says. Yes, I think so. Parmenides says this. He says, Then do you think that the whole idea is one? Okay, so when he says the whole idea here, he's talking about whatever it is, this idea that everything partakes in, in the way that a beautiful sunset partakes in beauty. What is the idea that everything partakes in? So Parmenides is calling this the whole idea. He says, Then do you think that the whole idea is one? And yet being one is in each one of the many. So this is interesting. Um, so, this, so the whole idea is something that Plato will later, will later call form. He calls that form. That's why, where we get this world of forms idea. Um, and then he says, and yet being one is in each one of the many. So here's the idea. He's, uh, Parmenides is saying, if everything, if everything is one if there is this idea that everything partakes in, whatever that is, does it exist in its entirety in every individual thing, in the many? So you basically have the whole in the many. (laughs) That sounds strange, but it's this fractal idea that comes up every time we talk about mystic intuition or psychedelic uh, experience, this idea of fractal comes up. It's this idea of geometry, usually, it's a mathematical idea, uh, where shapes beget shapes beget shapes, you think of it, think of like a kaleidoscope or something, where, where every pattern is repeated in, within itself, um, forever, so it's just a pattern repeating and repeating and repeating, Um, and there's all sorts of interesting fractal geometry, you guys can Google it, there's all sorts of interesting pictures you can look at. But this is the idea, and, and it's interesting because it's supposed to represent in the mystic experience. It's supposed to represent the relationship between what between God and and creation, for lack of a better word, between consciousness and itself. It's a it's a description of how uh, the source and structure of reality relates to reality itself. I don't know how else to put it um that that's what comes through in the mystic experience it's fractal geometry like somehow the image of the fractals is explaining this is explaining this idea to you and i just think it's very interesting the way parmenides brings that up he says if if there's this whole idea that everything partakes in then that idea is within everything and if that idea is the oneness that we're calling god then that's in every individual thing that exists it's like the all exists in, in the many. The infinite exists in the finite. Something weird like that. And this is what Parmenides is asking him. Um, Socrates' response is, Why not, Parmenides? This makes sense to me. Parmenides says, Because one and the same thing will exist as a whole at the same time in many separate individuals and will therefore be in a state of separation from itself. All right. So I, I don't exactly know how to ease into this, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do it crudely here. So here when Parmenides says, if if the the whole, if the oneness exists in everything, then what you have is the oneness, but it exists kind of on this macro level and it exists within itself on this micro level. And he says that it requires a separation from itself. Now because this idea of consciousness I brought up earlier, I want to try to insert it in here because because it's not clear, Parmenides doesn't make it clear that when he's talking about our experience, he's talking about reality, what he's talking about is experience, our experience of reality, not, you know... He, Something like that, because that's what we have access to our experiences it seems to us that reality is our experiences and so that that there's a connection there because what what has experience is consciousness so there's a connection between consciousness and this oneness and it brings me to Hegel because Hegel says something really interesting about it uh, in the phenomenology of spirit he says something like this uh where where Parmenides is saying, hey, that would require that would re- require a state of separation from itself. Okay, now let me, read this, let me read this passage to you from Hegel. Hegel says this. He says, "...self-consciousness has before it another self-consciousness. It has come outside itself." He it says, "...this has a double significance. First, it has lost its own self, since it finds itself as another being. Secondly, it has thereby sublimated that other, for it does not regard the other as essentially real." but sees its own self in the other. So I know that's as clear as mud, but what what Hegel is talking about here is this weird ability that we have to view ourselves as, as a third party. It's like people talk about, um, I've used this example before, but people talk about folks that are suffering from PTSD, especially from, from wartime uh, events, and when psychologists will talk to them and help them through it and ask them, you know, what it is that kind of set them off on this, on this PTSD, the way they describe it, almost without fail, is, is like a break that happened when they witnessed themselves acting in a way that they never imagined they would act. So somebody does something terrible, that they never thought they would ever do or could do, they see themselves do it, and it causes some sort of a psychological break. Um, it's not good, but it's an example of how you can how you can interact with yourself as though you're another person, as though you're a stranger. Um, you know, you can you can you can imagine watching yourself act, and that's what I mean, like looking at yourself as though you're a third person somehow. And so this is an idea that Hegel clearly talks about as self-consciousness. It's like your self, and then you have this ability to abstract away from yourself and see yourself like a third party and evaluate your actions and your thoughts and your behaviors as though you're a stranger doing it, as though you're God doing it, as though you can see you know, all of this other person's thoughts and, and desires and, and, and instincts. Like You're the God that can see into their soul and watch them act, and that, and that, and that person is you, there's a weird thing about being self-conscious that's like that. And I think this is what Parmenides is talking about when he says that it requires a state of separation from itself. It's like, If God is one, then, then that somehow requires a separation from itself. So let, let, me, let me keep reading here. Uh, Parmenides says, Nay, but the idea may be like the day, which is one and the same in many places at once, and yet continuous with itself. In this way, each idea may be one and the same in all. So now he's saying, look, the idea that everything partakes in, um, that idea really is being, by the way. I don't know if we're going to get there quickly enough, so let me just say, if you had to ask, what is this idea that everything partakes in, nothing is left out of? That idea is being, because everything that is is in being. Everything that is exists. So that you know, uh, just s- skip to the punchline. That is the thing Parmenides is looking for when he's talking to to Socrates here about the 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 one idea that everything partakes in. That's being okay. But that idea, you know, this oneness, this one idea that Parmenides is talking about. He said it might be something like the day, which is one and the same in many places at once and yet continuous with itself. So. So it's it's interesting. Um, It's just another way of conceptualizing the many and one in a way that makes sense, that doesn't seem like an opposite, you know, uh, conflicting opposites. He says, I imagine that the way in which you are led to assume one idea of each kind uh, is as follows. So this is Parmenides saying, I imagine, Socrates, this is where your mind is going. He says, you see a number of great objects, and when you look at them, there seems to you to be one and the same idea or nature in all of them. Hence, you conceive of greatness as one. So this is an example, kinda like I was giving you with Beauty before, where he says, you see different things that are great. You recognize them as great. And then once you have enough examples of that, you realize there's this thing called greatness that exists in all of them. And it's something like that that you imagine is one thing, even though the, the, all these things that are great are many different, different things. You know, maybe it's a great building, maybe it's a great poem, maybe it's a great, you know, whatever. And Socrates says, well, it would seem so. And Parmenides says, but may not the ideas, excuse me, this is Socrates, but may not the ideas be thoughts only and have no proper existence except in our minds. So this is Socrates' question to Parmenides. Might these ideas exist only in our minds? That's interesting. So we asked about that earlier. We said, if you have an idea like beauty or greatness, and you can see it in individual things, but not all by itself, yet you know it exists all by itself, how does that exist? And Socrates said, maybe it's just in our minds that it exists like that. All right, so then, said Parmenides, if you say that everything else participates in the ideas, must you not say either that everything is made up of thoughts and that all things think, or that they are thoughts, but have no thought. Okay, that's interesting. It's wordy, but interesting. He's saying, look, if it's true that, the, that this abstraction that you're getting at, this world of forms, the form that everything partakes in, this one thing, um, if you're saying that that exists only in thoughts, then what that implies is something like, the thing that's real is made up of thoughts. And that, maybe, and that maybe that's true with everything, that everything is somehow composed of thought and that everything thinks. Okay, now we can't avoid this idea of consciousness anymore. Now the idea of consciousness is coming right to the surface even though they're not exactly using that word. He's saying if things are made of thoughts and that's the place where these forms exist in consciousness, then maybe that's how to, how to look at this. That material reality is made of consciousness and it's consciousness that is the cause of it. And that's how consciousness could somehow be one in many. So maybe it, it's this idea that consciousness um, is, is associated with this oneness somehow. So at this point in the dialogue, um, the conversation changes a little bit. Um, it's sort of like a devil's advocate tactic that's, that comes up because everybody's asking questions and trying to get to the bottom of it. And so they decide to test the idea of reality being one. One. And they're basically saying, what would it mean if reality is one? If all is one, like Parmenides is saying, what would that mean? Okay. So it goes like this. He says, shall I begin with myself and take my own hypothesis and consider the consequences which follow on the supposition either of the being or of the not being of one? I know it's wordy, but that's exactly what I just said, he's saying, um, Parmenides is saying, I'm going to take my own philosophy, Zeno and my philosophy, and I'm going to talk about it like that. Um, And, uh, okay, so here we go, Parmenides says, if one is, he said, the one cannot be many. So I want to, (laughs) it's a simple sentence, but I have to stop. He said, if one is, and by that he means if one exists. Remember, the word is, like like Hegel said, it's just an allusion to being, or like Heidegger said, is and being are the same word. So he said, if one is, if one exists, if one is real, if if all is one, like Parmenides is saying, then one cannot be many. Because it's one, how can it be many? Okay, he says, then the one cannot have parts, But if it has no parts, it would have neither beginning, middle, nor end, for these would of course be parts of it. Then the one having neither beginning nor end is unlimited. And being of such a nature, it cannot be in any place, for it cannot be either in another or in itself." So here you start to see the implications, like we were talking about earlier. Like If you believe that everything is one, it starts to have weird implications implications like if everything is one it has no parts it has no beginning middle and end so it's sort of infinite it's unlimited it's eternal it's not like anything we think we know and then it, and then he says it cannot be in any place right because it's it's all there is if it were in a place it had, would have to be apart from itself somehow you know it's it, it, it doesn't quite make sense the idea of space or position or or momentum or any of the things that we think of as part of our you know, existence. He says, because if it were in another, it would be encircled and would touch it in many places. But that which is one and indivisible cannot be touched all around in many places. So this, this is interesting. We're starting to try to understand if everything is one, how exactly does it exist? And how exactly does the one that, that we claim to exist uh, relate to all the things we experience? All right. he says, But if on the other hand, one were in itself, it would also be contained by nothing else but itself. All right, so that to me, I bolded it. It's just tremendous because I came to this same realization myself um, in, 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 in Mystic Intuition, exactly this. He says, if one were in itself... It would also be contained by nothing else but itself. So here's the idea. We're trying to understand what it would mean for everything to be one. We're trying to understand what that means. If consciousness, especially, if consciousness is this oneness, like like Hegel talked about, uh, we read that quote just a minute ago, um, then how this thing exists is somehow in itself, because it has to be self-contained, self-referencing, Self-created, right? If we're talking about God here, God could not have been created. He has to have always existed because he's eternal and infinite. How could there be a beginning to the infinite, to the absolute? There cannot. So we have to imagine God as being something that exists within itself. It's self-contained. It exists within itself. Why? Because itself is the only place that exists. It's the only thing that exists. It's the one, right? Right? All is one, is only God. So how does God exist in itself? That may seem silly, but it's so important. When we start thinking about the idea of consciousness and God together, because then what you end up with is this idea of consciousness within consciousness. It's exactly the same thing I read from Hegel. Self-consciousness has before it another self-consciousness. That's what he said. And that's how we experience ourselves. Consciousness within consciousness. It's amazing. That's the thing we call ourselves. Self-conscious, right? So this is a description of being within being. Consciousness within consciousness. of The self-created. That's what Aristotle will say um, a little bit after Plato. He he calls it the unmoved mover. The uncreated creator. That's the beginning. Jordan Peterson calls that the Ouroboros. It's the idea of consciousness. Subject and object together before those things are separated. Ouroboros. That's that's God, according to Jordan Peterson. It's amazing. Um, okay. There is another related idea here, which is that if if the all exists within itself, if God exists within itself, consciousness within consciousness, like we're saying. There's this idea that, if, that God is infinite and that the things we experience are not. They're finite. And if God is all there is, then you can imagine everything's made of God. Everything is made of this infinity, this infinite thing. So how is it if that's the case that everything we experience isn't infinite? Everything we experience is finite. It has borders and boundaries and, you know, definable, you know, clear, clear, clearly definable objects. How is, it, how is it that way? There's this idea and I don't understand really well, but I want to try to explain it. And it goes like this. If God exists within God, then God is contained within itself. The infinite is contained within itself. You can't contain the infinite. It's impossible. It's infinite. But if God exists within God or, or consciousness within consciousness, then that's kind of what we've got here. We've got this situation where the infinite is delimited by itself itself. So the infinite becomes finite and it does it, it does it to itself because it exists within itself. It's its own borders. It's its own boundaries. It's very interesting because there's a way in which something that's infinite cannot be experienced. You know, it can't be experienced. Um, it needs to be delimited somehow, contained somehow for it to be experienced. Otherwise, it just goes on and on and on and you can never quite grasp it all. It's an infinite, right? And what this description is saying is that well consciousness sort of does that to itself because you because it exists within itself. I know it's hard to I know it's hard to to, to make sense of, so I want to maybe stop harping on it. I just I just wanted to kind of try to make that clear. All right. But then that which contains a being must be other than that which is contained, for the same whole cannot do and suffer both at once. And if so, one will no longer be one, but two. So this is interesting. Um, he's saying that that which contains must be other than that which is contained. He's saying, how can God exist within God, or how can consciousness exist within consciousness? Um, how can that be the case? Because you're asking you're asking God to be both its container and that which is contained. Isn't that two things and not one? And isn't that the whole point you're making that everything is one? He says, "Further consider whether that which is out, of, that which is of such a nature, can have either rest or motion." And Socrates says, "Why not?" He says, "Why? Because the one, if it were moved, would be changed in nature, and the one, when it changes, would cease to be itself, cannot be any longer one." Now, this is really interesting because it talks about, it talks about change. So you've got this. If you're, you're understanding the universe, the cosmos, everything, as one. And you're saying that, you're recognizing that there's transformation, that things are always changing. So how can the one remain one if things are always changing and becoming other things? How can that be? He says, if one be the same with itself, it is not one with itself and will therefore be one and also not one. Okay, this is is really interesting. This is starting to get into those paradoxes that turn people away from this type of of philosophy. Um, Things like the idea of being and not being. You know, it's... You know, it begs the question. It requires definition, and it's very difficult to talk about. Uh, Here he's saying that if the one be the same with itself... So if, if if the one, we'll call that God, if God is contained within God, he says, it is not one with itself. It will therefore be one and also not one. But here's the thing. If you believe what Parmenides believes, that it all is one, then God is both the, the source of creation and creation itself. It's both one and not one, just like Parmenides is describing. Um, Parmenides says, must not the whole if it is one itself be and have for its parts one and being for all for being always involves one and one being, so that one is always disappearing and becoming two so now he's talking about this this distinction between between the source of creation and creation itself between the one and the, and the the perceptions that we have of existence. how do we make sense of that? He says that it seems to me like like. The one is basically made up of these two things. The one, whatever that is, and being, as though they're two separate things, because being can't possibly be one, because it's always changing. And it's not like the idea, the, the forms that, that uh, Parmenides and Zeno and Plato have been talking about so far, it's not like the thing that exists in our psyche. It's not like, it's not like consciousness, these free-floating ideas. Beings not like that. Beings is fast and true. It's it's the earth. It's the material. It's you know. Uh, it's a different sort of thing than than the thoughts that I have in my in my psyche that don't have any substance to them, or or at least not the same kind. That's what I mean. How can they be the same? And then he says, and so the one, if it is, must be infinite in multiplicity. And so this is the idea too that that this that that. The the nature of being always changing and transforming, that 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 might actually be what's consistent. It, it, it might actually be what makes God changeless, is because it's it's the thing that's always changing. This is another allusion to this fractal geometry that we talked about earlier. He calls that infinite and multiplicity. That is a description of the fractal image, tuity. All right, he says. We say that the one partakes of being, and therefore it is. And in this way, the one has turned out to be many. All right, so next, Parmenides describes how how one becomes many uh, by the interaction of the one with itself. So we talked about God existing within itself. Like, God is this place where God exists, so it's God within God. That's kind of the image we want to stick with. All right, so Parmenides says, And if each of them is one, then by the addition of any one to any pair the whole becomes 3 and 3 are odd and 2 are even so you see now there's now there's odd and even as concepts so it's like we start off we start off with the idea of one we consider this idea of being like we've been talking about as maybe part of it then you've got one and this other thing two and 1 plus 2 is 3 and then we and now we have even and odd numbers so this is weird but this is him talking about how we're getting, we're starting with this idea of one, which is one idea. And we're starting to get from it new ideas. So these are numerical ideas, like the fact that there, that there's a difference between one and two, that now we have uh, the idea of even and odd, because we've got these numbers one and two. And it's strange, but let's keep going. And he says, and if there are two, there must also be twice. And if there are three, there must also be thrice That is, if twice one makes two, and and thrice one, three. There are two and twice, and therefore there must be twice two. And three, and and three, excuse me, and there are three, and there is thrice, and therefore there must be thrice three. And if this is so, does any number remain which has no necessity to be? So this is really abstract and kind of silly, but it does the trick what it's talking about, what Parmenides is talking about here is that you can start with this idea of one um, and from it, you can start to, from from it starts to emerge other ideas. And these ideas didn't exactly come from anywhere. You can just deduce them from the one. Um, you know, other numbers, you know, if there's one, there must be other numbers. Um, those other numbers are odd and even. Now you've got those ideas, Um, You can start to add and multiply these numbers that that you've created and create new numbers with them And so what you end up with is every possible concept every possible number and the way he says that is um, And if this is so does any number remain which has no necessity to be? So the idea is that you can start with this idea of one and from it get a multiplicity of things you can get many from one And he says, then if one is, number must also be. But if there is number, there must also be many, an infinite multiplicity of being. For number is infinite in multiplicity and partakes also of being. Then being is distributed over the whole multitude of things, and nothing that is, however small or however great, is devoid of it. And it is divided into the greatest and into the smallest and into being of all sizes and is broken up more than all things. The divisions of it have no limit. So you can, you can start with the one. It's infinite. You can break that up and, and divide it into an infinity of things. That's what he's, that's what he's saying. He says, oh, and, and, and this idea that all of these things contain being." So, that, so there's this thread of being that runs through all of it. This is the idea. This is that, that form that everything partakes in. That's being. Okay, he says, then the one attaches to every single part of being. So that we'll call the one God, for lack of a better word. So God attaches to every single part of being. He says, the one, again, let's call that God, is never wanting to being or being to the one but being two, they are co-equal and co-extensive. So this is interesting. This is the first time where Parmenides is, is going down this thread of logic all the way to the point where he says, okay, if everything is one as I believe, then that one thing, that God, that God, let's say, that, that exists in all these different divisions or parts of God. It's, they're, in, they're indivisible. So you've got being and God as, he says, co-equal, and coextensive the the idea of god and being really are not different things but maybe the maybe the the complete way of understanding the oneness it's not just the one it's the one and being together whatever that is parmenides says the one itself then having been broken up into parts by being is many and infinite so i have to say that this reminds me of uh jordan peterson talking about um talking about the uh, mas- the mesopotamian creation myth the enuma elish where he talks about like like we said a bit ago there this primordial thing that the universe was born from this thing that's called the Ouroboros. it's something like like um subject and object together it's like opposites united whatever that means and it gets separated into reality, in the myth. It gets separated into being. And it's Marduk and and Tiamat, the the chaos and order principles that get separated by consciousness, which is the god Apsu. And this is what I'm seeing here. When Parmenides says, the one itself, then having been broken up into parts by being, is many and infinite. So he's talking about the one, that's God. That's the Ouroboros, getting broken up into parts, just like Apsu divided Marduk and Tiamat into two. That that's what consciousness has done. He's saying he's saying that that is done by being. This is having been broken up into parts by being. So now we have this connection between being and consciousness showing up again. And it's no surprise. Because again, that's how we experience consciousness. Or that's how we experience our being. What's your being? What's human being? It's the experiences that human beings have. The experiences that we're having. That's what being is. All right, let's go on. He said, Then the one being always itself in itself and other must always be both at rest and in motion. So this is the idea of God as the idea and God as the reality. And that's the cosmos. That's material reality, you and I. Um, He says, Two things then, at the least, are necessary to make contact possible. And so... So to make contact possible, that's experience. That's the thing I'm talking about. You make contact possible, and what do you have? Experience. That's the thing that we're aware of. That's the thing thing that we're conscious of. Our experience. That's what being is. He's saying two things at least are necessary to make that possible. What are those two things? God and being. One and being. Just Just like he said a moment ago. All right, he says, And this will be true also of the relation of the one to itself. And yet the one being itself in itself will also surround and be without itself. And as containing itself will be greater than itself. And as contained in itself will be less. And will thus be greater and and less than itself. So this this, uh, this is this grappling of the idea of God within God. He said being itself in itself. That's what God is. Um that, that kind of makes it greater and less than itself. So you can see how it becomes more than one thing here. And that's how being seems to us, as more than one thing. He says, and it and will not the one come into being together with each part? So so this is interesting too. Well, the one come into being together with each part. So the one is God, and being is 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 the many. You know, that God is divided up or separated up into. And he and he and the point being made here is that those things form together. Um, it's because it's not clear that one comes before the other. That one is cause and one is effect. Right? It's they're one thing. God and creation are one thing somehow, and. And so they come into being together, and that's interesting. Going back to uh, Jordan Peterson again, because he he talked about uh, one of his influences, a scientist named Jean Piaget. Uh, he was a developmental psychologist and he studied how kids develop psychologically. And one of the things he said is that when he studies um, you know uh, development in in, ch- in children, what he notices is that the subject and the object have a mutual construction in in their in their minds that. That a child learning to be a person, learning to be an individual, builds and develops his own personality the same as he builds and develops his his perception of the world. That they're built together. They come into being together. Experience of the world and identity. That those things come into, into being together. And this is what Parmenides is saying about God and the cosmos. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. So it's like the one is not one exactly, without, without considering being. That being has to be factored in. that God requires reality, and reality requires God. That they cannot and do not exist separately. So that they are one in mutual counter-existence. That might be another way of putting it. Alright, he says, Then the one was, and is, and will be, and was becoming, and is becoming, and will become, And on the same principle, in the passage from one to many, and from many to one, the one is neither one nor many, neither separated nor aggregated. And yet when each part becomes a part, then the parts have a limit in relation to the whole and to each other, and the whole in relation to the parts. Okay, so this is another way of describing how it can be that something infinite like God can become something finite like the material world. Because where does the limitation come from exactly? We talked about God existing within God somehow being its own limitations. But here he's saying, when each part becomes a part, then the parts have a limit in relation to the whole and to each other, and the whole in relation to the parts. So what you end up having here is the infinite being defined by itself, or counterdefined by itself. So it becomes its own limits, and those limits become being that's the experience that we have of the limited world around us. It's amazing. Um, just like the uh, creation story the Enuma Elish talks about, you know, order being created, um, established, you know, from, uh, from chaos, that this is sort of what we're seeing here um, uh, with the one becoming many. All right, so then it wraps up this way. Um, the one appears to create a new element in them which gives them a limitation in relation to one another, whereas in their own nature they have no limit. Then the others and the one, both as a whole and parts, are infinite and also partake of limit. Then we may not sum up the argument in a word and say truly, if one is not, then nothing is. So that's how it ends. So Parmenides believes, and he's argued, that if if everything is not one as he as he says it is then, then nothing exists at all and reality is an illusion um something like that and because we have reality we have to agree that that everything is one like, as he's, he as he's been describing um and so it's i know it's i know it's it's hard to wrap your wrap your brain around uh trying to make sense of all this but i just think it's really interesting um that's that this idea, that this platonic idea of the world of forms that Plato brings when he founds his academy, that all of Western philosophy from that point on is, is going to be based on, the reason why we say everything is a footnote to Plato, the academy, and everything that came out of that, that this goes back to Socrates, the influence on Plato that he's writing about here. And Socrates believes is convinced by Parmenides' argument that all is one. That that the world that we exist in, and the, all the multiplicity of things that we see, this this thing that I that I say is is sort of symbolized by this by this fractal image and fractal geometry that keeps coming up. That all of this goes back to to ultimately to Socrates and Plato, and and it's it's whitewashed it's it's hidden away you never hear you never hear people talk about religion and philosophy in that way in fact you don't hear them talk about religion and philosophy together very much at all anymore and here we have evidence that at the very heart of it that 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 plato came from this tradition and socrates was convinced by parmenides that everything is one and that it explains the multiplicity of the world it explains the nature of the world it explains what why there is literally the infinite in the finite. The the reason that we can split an atom, a single atom, and destroy a city, because there is the infinite power in everything, even the smallest things like an atom. We know that to be true. And Parmenides knew that to be true in 600 BC. Um, so anyway, I you know, what strikes me as important here and the reason that I want to bring this to you at all it is difficult you can see how difficult it is for me to try to make sense of this to you is because when i read this parmenides dialogue i hear plato speaking to me from you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago in the same words that i used when i had my own mystic experience hegel does it too heidegger does it too um Hegel does it a lot, actually. I'm I'm definitely going to have to do an episode on Hegel for you. Um, And I just can't believe that that the mystic experience that's possible to have, that you and I can have today if we want, um, that that speaks of this oneness, that we see it trickle down into religion, that we know it rests at the foundation of philosophy and all the things that Western philosophy, um, that we've built on Western philosophy, our entire civilization and culture, that that stuff's there and nobody talks about it because people are afraid to talk about God because academics in particular are afraid to bring it up because they don't want to be ridiculed because there aren't, Hard and fast truths. There aren't experiments that can be done here to prove any of this. And yet, there it is nonetheless, in every religious tradition, in the mystic experience, accessible to all of us, just like being is accessible to all of us. So I don't know what it means. I don't know what you think of that, but it's interesting.